All right, we've got a lot to cover this morning. We'll see how far we get. We're going to do Revelation 19, 7 through 10. Four verses. Let's read those together. Revelation 19, 7 through 10. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And of course, this is John who's writing it down, the Apostle John, the Revelator, they call him. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. This is the angel, of course, interacting with John. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So now, this is going to be a really enjoyable study, I think, but this passage creates the need, I think, to look at two important questions here. Maybe you're already beginning to think along these lines, but the questions are, when... Number one, and two, where will the marriage and marriage supper of the Lamb happen? And there are actually at least three answers to these questions that have been put forth. The first is that the marriage will take place when the church is raptured to meet Christ in the air, but listen to this, at His second coming, which is the post-tribulational viewpoint. The marriage will take place when the church is raptured to meet Christ in the air at his second coming, and the marriage supper will happen on earth throughout the millennium. That's one viewpoint. Number two, the marriage will happen in heaven when the church is raptured prior to the 70th week, the tribulation period, which is what we ascribe to the pre-tribulational rapture. But then the second part of the second belief is that the marriage supper will occur on earth Again, throughout the millennium, which interesting take. The third one, the marriage will happen in heaven when the church is raptured prior to the 70th week, tribulation period, pre-trib, and the marriage supper will happen in heaven throughout the seven years of the 70th week. And as we learned from the uh, Before the Wrath video, the marriage supper lasted for the marriage celebration, reception, whatever you want to call it, lasted for seven days, equating to the seven years of the tribulation. So it's pre-tribulational rapturous here at Calvary Chapel East, and that is the held belief of, it's supposed to be the held belief of all Calvary chapels. I cannot guarantee you that that's the case in this day and age. But Pastor Chuck Smith was very adamant about a pre-tribulational rapture, and he didn't, uh, he what didn't approve of any Calvary Chapel pastor teaching a contrary viewpoint. But this is the position we hold. So we line up with number three here. But even among those who are pre-tribulational, there is not universal agreement. Thomas Ice, who came and spoke when we were over in the shopping center there across Tramway, he's an expert on Bible prophecy. He heads up the pre-tribulational research center. But here's his take. It's a little bit different. 
Though the marriage of the Lamb to his bride, the church, and the marriage supper of the Lamb are closely related, they are separate events just as the wedding ceremony and the wedding reception of our day are separate events. In fact, these two events are often held at two different locations, the wedding, the reception, just as the marriage of the Lamb will be in heaven right before the second coming. So again, a little bit different take than what we embrace while the marriage supper of the Lamb will commence with the beginning of the millennium. Perhaps some are confused and fail to make these distinctions because the word marriage is used to refer to both events. By comparing Scripture with Scripture and distinguishing the things that differ, it appears clear that they are two separate events. And so this is Thomas Ice, who is a pre-tribulational guy, but a little bit different take than what we're embracing. Again, how many of you saw the movie that we showed here in church before the wrath? Most of you, I guess. Anyway, that laid it out so well. Another gentleman who's no longer with us, Zola Levitt. How many of you have heard of Zola Levitt? Messianic teacher, preacher, passed away uh, some time back. But Zola Levitt did some teachings on this subject and laying out the, the Jewish marriage, the progression from the betrothal and uh, the preparations and the bridegroom coming in the middle of the night for the bride, just like we saw in that video. If you didn't see it, I encourage you to seek it out. You can purchase it online. Does anybody know, is it available anywhere for streaming for free? or Has anybody seen that? I'm not aware of that. Before the Wrath, it is called. And there's a couple of Calvary Chapel pastors, Jack Hibbs, J.D. Farag, Jan Markell, Amir Sarfati is in it, some really good people. So. But anyway, it, that lays it out so well. So now one more take on this before we move on. This is from John MacArthur. I believe that at the rapture, at the beginning of the tribulation, so our dear brother MacArthur is a pre-tribulational guy as well, the bride is taken to glory and presented to the heavenly hosts, to the spirits of just men made perfect who have now had resurrected bodies and are made glorified. And for those seven years there is feasting and joyous fellowship and wonderful celebration. But now it's time for the final supper that signals the end and the ceremony itself, the last great event. And this is what we have here when we talk about the marriage of the Lamb, the final culminating event. The betrothal in eternity past, the presentation, certainly when the saints are taken into glory, and now the final great event as the marriage is consummated in its fullness. So Basically, what MacArthur is saying is that he believes that when we get to heaven as the bride, we are presented before the Father as the betrothed of Jesus Christ, but that the, and they'll be celebrating in heaven throughout the tribulation. While it's horrible here on earth, it's going to be glorious in heaven. But then the culmination comes at the second coming. So his position, again, is slightly different. Again, our position lines up with the biblical information we saw presented in the film Before the Wrath. Based upon that, it would seem that the insertion of these things at this point, this is why I bring all this up. This is the big issue. Because if the marriage you know, the, of, the, of the bride to the lamb and the marriage supper and all that takes place in heaven while the tribulation is going on here on earth, why did he wait until chapter 19 to put this in here? What I see 
is that the insertion of these things at this point in the narrative of Revelation is another instance. We've talked about this throughout our studies in Revelation, that not everything in Revelation is chronological. There's a lot of back and forth going on. I believe this is some more non-chronological information. And so one final thought before we examine this passage. If the marriage and the marriage supper of the Lamb are not to take place at the second coming, like we've seen some people believe, and during the millennium, then why are they mentioned in Revelation 19 between the judgment of the great whore, Babylon, and the second coming of Christ? There's two possible reasons. One, to draw a contrast between the great whore, the idolatrous, adulterous, false, satanic, one-world religion, to draw a contrast between her with all of her impure connections and the bride of Christ with her pure union with Christ. And secondly, to draw a contrast between the blessing of those called to the marriage supper of the Lamb and the judgment of the rebels here on earth at the second coming of Christ. And so finally, I would say above all, this is one of those areas where we will probably never see in this lifetime universal agreement Above all, we should focus on the joyous occasion that awaits us as the bride of Christ. So let's pray. Father, we lift up this time in your word this morning. We ask you to give us insight, understanding, wisdom. You promised if any man lacks wisdom, we could ask you and you would give it to us. Uh, So we ask you to just give us understanding as we study these verses today and help us to apply them to our own hearts, our own minds, our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it starts with, let us be glad and rejoice and give him, God, glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Keep in mind now, this scene, as we understand it, is in heaven. Jesus, the Lamb, is the bridegroom in the church. Uh, Those raptured at the beginning of the tribulation are the bride. And that would include the dead in Christ. Remember, the dead in Christ shall rise first. So not only those alive at the time of the rapture of the church, but those who have died in Christ over the past 2,000 years. John 3, 28 and 29, this is John the Baptist speaking. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and bears, hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. So John the Baptist identified himself as the friend of the bridegroom, or you could say the best man. He's considered the last of the Old Testament prophets, and therefore John the Baptist was not part of the Gentile bride of Christ. He wasn't a Gentile, obviously. And the bride of Christ is made up primarily of Gentiles. This is the age of the Gentiles that we've been living in for the past 2,000 years. Luke 7, 28, For I say to you, among those born of women, this is Jesus speaking, of course, among those born of women there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, 
but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The church is a very specific entity. Even though the Bible also teaches we are grafted into the vine, into Israel, at the same time, the New Testament church, primarily made up of Gentiles, is a unique and separate entity, the ecclesia in the Greek, the called out ones. And there's a very specific relationship between Christ and his church. It's important to understand that as we look at this passage on the bride and the bridegroom. So Paul says that the New Testament church is the bride of Christ. And although God does not show partiality, there is within his kingdom a system of, you could say, rank or position, not privilege, but different, just as there are different responsibilities within, for example, a marriage, a husband and a wife. Paul said there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, all are one in Christ. And yet we find in the scriptures that there are different functions. We are different. We're created different. We're created to complement one another. And so God divorced Israel and for 2,000 years has been gathering to himself a Gentile bride. Again, we just had Avi Lipkin last week. We love Israel. We love God's chosen people. And he's keeping all of his promises to them, by the way. And he is in the process of restoring Israel. But their, their position is slightly different than the New Testament church. Jeremiah 3.8, Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. Again, God has promised to restore Israel, but her position will be different than that of the church in the millennial kingdom. Not inferior, but different. So it's interesting that this is the marriage supper of the Lamb and not of the King or even the Lord. It's not called the marriage supper of the Lord. It's not called the marriage supper of the King. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. The one title that Christ once emphasized for all eternity is the Lamb because it speaks of His love for the church and the price He paid to purchase it. Remember John the Baptist as he was preparing the way of the Lord says, here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it tells us here that His wife or His bride has made herself ready. Literally, it means his wife prepared herself. The marriage has been consummated, so now she is his wife. And notice something. We have a responsibility as believers, as part of the church, the bride of Christ, to prepare ourselves. And we'll cover that more as we move into this next verse. To her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, we're not saved by works, but we are still called upon by God as believers to perform acts of righteousness in this life, are we not? Fine linen, clean and bright. Pure linen was mandatory apparel for the high priest entering the Holy of Holies, Leviticus 16.4. After a period of time, the requirement was extended to all ministers in the sanctuary. And by the way, 
We are, as New Testament believers, we are a royal priesthood unto God, according to Peter. And in the scriptures, angels are often depicted as wearing linen, as is Jesus. Daniel 10, 5 and 6. Daniel says, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of Uphaz. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. Sounds a lot like Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. Could be an angel, could be Jesus. But notice, again, clothed in linen. To her it was granted to be arrayed or was given her to wear. And so no one gets into the wedding without the proper clothing and only God can provide them. Isaiah 61.10 I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Then Zechariah 3.4 He answered and spoke to those who stood before him saying, Take away the filthy garments from him and to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. But now it gets interesting here, because yes, on the one hand, as believers, God graciously clothes us in his robes of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. But then it says the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. God is the one who provides our garments, but as we've already seen, we are to prepare ourselves as well. How? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the first step in preparing ourselves for eternity, preparing ourselves for our wedding as the bride of Christ, is to make sure that the very foundation of our lives is Jesus Christ. I'm concerned that there are a lot of people, you know, I coined this phrase some time back, People who identify as believers? Did you know? This is, this is hard to even believe. I just read where this statistic, I can't believe it. 70%, this seems high, but this is what I read, of college students on their entrance applications are identifying as minorities to get preferential treatment. And they're now accepting that. So you can identify as any ethnicity you want. You never know who might get up here next week, who I might be. <laughs> because in today's world, now the only thing it's not recommended is to identify yourself as a Christian. You can identify as anything else. Unbelievable. But, my point was, <laughs> I'm concerned about how many people under the umbrella, if you will, of Christianity, those who identify as Christians, believers, is Jesus the foundation or is he just an ornament? You see? Is he the very foundation of your life or is he just a little add-on, you know? I'm afraid that's true for a lot of people. He's not the foundation. 
They like the idea of having them around. They identify as followers of Christ. But the only way you're going to get to that place where you are prepared and adorned with the proper garments to be part of that wedding is that Christ must be the very foundation. That everything in your life has to be built upon Jesus. It's not built upon your education. It's not built upon your vocation. It's not built upon your financial prosperity or lack thereof. It's not built upon family and friends. I'm sorry. It must be built upon the solid foundation of Jesus Christ. No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So that's the starting point. As you are about the business in this life of preparing yourself for your wedding to Jesus Christ. Now, verse 12, Paul says, Paul writes, If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Boy, there's a marked contrast between the first three and the next three, aren't there? you got gold, silver, precious stones, uh, arguably practically imperishable materials. You can melt gold down, you can melt silver down, but then it will it still retains its its properties and will as it cools down it will be solid again. You could pour it out on the ground, go back later and you'll find it there. Precious stones, diamonds. Diamonds are so strong they make saw blades out of them, right? Anybody ever used a diamond tipped saw blade? Drill bit? But then you've got wood, hay, and straw, which are very vulnerable, very perishable. They light on fire real easy. Each one's work will become clear for the day, big D, the day of the Lord, will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. Our God's a fiery God. You better make sure you're on the right side of that equation. His fire is, is a sense of comfort, strength, warmth, and enlightenment to those who know him, but to those who don't, it's to be feared. The fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So again, we're not saved by our works, but our righteous acts here on earth are preparing us for eternity what kind of reward will we see, receive? What will our bridal gown look like, if you will? And don't feel bad about that, guys, because the, the Scots wear kilts. So I think we can wear a bridal gown and still retain our manhood. Make sure the hairy legs are sticking out the bottom, at least, I guess. And I meant the men on that one, so... 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness. Ooh, better make sure our closets are cleaned out, right? We'll both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then, see, here's where a lot of people stumble. Believers, we shouldn't, but if we don't get the recognition we feel like we deserve, I've told you before, don't ask God to give you what you deserve. 
If, if people aren't nice enough to us, if they're not appreciative enough, if they don't recognize, we get all bent out of shape, we get our feelings hurt and so forth, and we get offended. And as believers, did you know we're not supposed to be easily offended? Did you know that? And yet many people are. Then each one's praise will come from God. At the end of the day, folks, when we stand before the Lord, that's what we should be looking for, working towards, not concerned about the acknowledgement and recognition and praise of men, but praise from God. And that comes at the end of the day. That's when we get our eternal paycheck, if you will. Judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. You see, you know, we do. We get bent out of shape. We get offended. We, get, we don't feel like we get what we should get, what recognition, you know, applause, affirmation, so forth. But you know what? Only God knows what the deeds that we have done, the ones that are really commendable. We might think we've done all this great stuff, and God looks at that and says, well, actually, you, you didn't do it for the right reason. Your heart wasn't in the right place. We think we, need, we, we deserve reward, right? But many times we don't. God knows. If we keep our eyes on Him, then that's our best chance of doing those things which truly are worthy of eternal reward. So the good news here. Everyone will receive his praise from God. Every believer, every true believer, every true follower of Christ. Not necessarily just those who identify as believers. However, we also see in the scriptures, some will receive more than others. The good news is, by the time that rolls around, we will have been perfected. And so it won't bother us if somebody else gets a bigger reward than we do. In this life, it would, right? Then it's not going to... You're just going to be glad to be there, I guarantee you. Some will receive more than others by the time the wedding comes. At the end of the tribulation, we will have already stood before the Bema seat and received our rewards, or lack thereof. Our wedding garment will be comprised of the good works that survive the flames of testing. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9.27... I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. Paul says, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. So he's talking about doing those things in this life which are preparing him for that great wedding day. So he's also talking about practicing what he preaches Lest when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. In James, James talks about being a doer of the word and not a hearer only. 2 John 1.8, look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. What's, what's John implying here? That it's possible to not receive a full reward. Only God knows what that full reward looks like, but he's saying, look to yourselves. Remember Jesus said, before you try to remove the speck or splinter from your brother's eye, first remove the 
log or beam. Plank eye, there was a Christian band called Plank Eye. Before you try to remove the speck or the splinter from your brother's eye, first remove the log from your own. Look to yourselves. See, and that's one of the enemy's strategies to get us distracted looking at others. Look what they're up to. Man, I can't believe that guy. He calls himself a Christian? No, no. Look to yourselves. Look to yourselves. That we do not lose those things we worked for. That we may receive a full reward. Any truly good thing we do in this life can only be done by the grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Do we understand that? The gifts of the Spirit have been referred to, uh, the Greek is charisma. It has, it's God's grace. It's gracelets. The gracelets of God. God pouring out His grace upon us, enabling us in turn to minister to one another the grace of God. I believe that each one of us is now in this life making the garment we will wear to our wedding with Christ. This is different than our robe of righteousness, which represents our salvation. It also has to do, I believe, with our position in the millennial kingdom of Jesus. You know, in the military, they have the uniforms and epaulets. They're all different kinds of things that represent your rank. And then you have your medals and so forth, you know. So I'm picturing something along those lines. We we're in this life, we are preparing our wedding garment, which will also be our uniform, if you will, in the millennial kingdom. Just food for thought. Food for thought. Luke 19, 17. He said to them, the master in this parable, which is really Jesus, he said to them, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little and we see the things of this life as a big deal, don't we? You know that expression, making a mountain out of a molehill? We're all really good at doing that. But Jesus refers to the things in this life that he's entrusted to us as very little, the small things compared to eternity. Because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. The millennial kingdom will be very similar to what earth is like now, except Jesus will be on the throne, and there won't be any sin allowed, any evil allowed, any destruction allowed. It's going to be the restoration of all things under Jesus Christ, but there will still be people groups, there'll be cities, there'll be nations, according to the Bible. Somebody has to oversee all that, right? I hate to shock you, but it's going to be you and me. <laughs> That's another reason why this life is preparation time. So often we're just focused on surviving, getting by, you know, what about my needs? We need an eternal perspective, folks, because this is just the phase one. This is just the training ground. I think we could all probably do a better job of preparing ourselves for what happens next. And the second came saying, Master... Your mina has earned five minas. So the first guy took the, the ten minas and he multiplied it and he got ten cities. This next guy, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also will be over five cities. So one guy got a bigger reward because he, he produced more. But they're both rewarded. And I guarantee you, 
in that eternal setting, the five mina guy is not going to be griping about the ten mina guy. But it does show us that our activities here in this life are important in light of eternity. Our preparation. His bride has prepared herself. Again, we can never earn our salvation. Only the blood of Christ can remove our sins. It's the gift of God. It's the grace of God. But at the same time, now that we have been joined to Him through the blood of Christ, we have a responsibility in this life to be looking towards eternity, the millennial kingdom and beyond, and recognizing that this life is our time of preparation. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Now obviously the bride is invited, so this must be a reference to other guests, right? Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. All the righteous dead... I believe, from Adam to the resurrection of Christ, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets, John the Baptist, who's the best man, as well as the tribulation martyrs who were not part of the church at the rapture. All of God's people will be at the banquet, but we as the bride or the wife of Christ will sit in the seat of honor. These are the true sayings of God. True means genuine. Through the rest of the book of Revelation, we will see this emphasized repeatedly. These are the true sayings of God. You can take it to the bank. Not the words of men. This truly is the revelation of Jesus Christ. These are His words, not the words of men. And therefore, we can be sure that these things will surely come to pass. Verse 10, I fell at His feet to worship Him, but He said to me, See that you do not... Do that. I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I fell at his feet to worship him. So John, he's overwhelmed by this beautiful revelation of the wedding of the Lamb and the glorification of his bride. So John, like so many believers, is tempted to worship the vessel, the messenger, the angel Rather than the creator or the author, he falls at the feet of John the Apostle, who spent three and a half years with Jesus, the Apostle of love, great man of God, and yet he's so overwhelmed by this whole vision of the, of the wedding feast, the bride, the wedding, and the bride of Christ, that he falls at the feet of the angel to worship him. But it's, and it's easier for man to direct his worship to someone or something that is tangible that he can see. Remember, even when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt, the first thing they did, they get out there and they, they talk Aaron into melting down all the gold and making a golden calf, remember? They wanted something that they could see that was beautiful and they could touch. And they had this horrible pagan celebration, orgy, if you will. And that's the tendency. That's why we have so many false belief systems on this planet. It's because man demands to worship something he can see and touch. And by the way, a big part of the uh, 
seeker-friendly, purpose-driven, all these uh, different movements that are kind of converging together as they were, they're calling for a return to the more ritualistic forms of worship within Christianity. The candles, the icons, prayer stations where you have a station there with candles and, you know, saints and all this kind of stuff. The Protestant Reformation was all about getting away from all of that. The, the Puritans were hardcore men. They didn't want any symbols of any kind in the church, even crosses. Now, you can get to a point where you're legalistic. But the point is, we are not to worship anyone or anything except God. 2 Corinthians 4.18, Paul says, While we do not look or fix our eyes on the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You know, I've seen people really get into angels, right? And they'll have all over their house all kinds of angel figurines and wall hangings. And, you know, we had touched by an angel. Years ago, I kind of made fun of it, Roma Downey. I called it touched by a sexy angel. And my wife said, you ruined that program for everybody by calling it touched by a sexy angel. (laughs) We were just talking about that the other day, actually. Hebrews chapter 1 says the angels are God's ministering spirits sent forth to watch over those who are the heirs of salvation. We do have guardian angels, but they're not the focal point. We don't pray to them. I hope not. Don't pray to any angels. Don't pray to Mary. Don't pray to St. Christopher. I was kind of jealous of my Catholic friends growing up. They had all these cool, you know, St. Christopher medals and stuff. And, you know, I wanted one of those just because I thought it looked cool. We only pray to God through his son, Jesus Christ. Because he's the only one who has the power and the authority to answer your prayers. You know that? John 20, 29. Remember Doubting Thomas? He missed the first meeting with Jesus post-resurrection. He shows up a week later for the second meeting. And Thomas, even when he sees Jesus, he he says, I refuse to believe unless I can touch the nail prints in his hand, the wound in his side. Jesus shows up, says, go ahead, go for it. Touch me. And then Thomas believes. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that is literally millions upon millions of people for over the last 2,000 years because God's Spirit has imparted to us the ability, the faith to believe, the gift of faith, the gift of repentance. Peter, 1 Peter 1.8, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. So the angel's response to John as he falls down to worship, we've got to give poor old John a break here. He is rather elderly at this point. See that you do not do that. This is a good angel, obviously. The bad angels who fell with Satan, they would love you for you to worship them. Don't do that. I am your fellow servant. 
Even the greatest among men or angels are merely God's servants and are not to be worshipped. To do so is idolatry. Again, we talk about saints, angels, Mary, the Pope. Ooh, I saw a good one on the Pope yesterday. You might even see it sometime. We've been taken down off of YouTube a couple times now, you know. <laughs> I, I, I kind of felt bad that they hadn't done it sooner. I, my feelings were hurt. I feel better now. It's a great honor to be banned by YouTube, I think. <laughs> we don't worship the saints, the angels, Mary, the Pope, Billy Graham, the late, great Billy Graham, great man of God, but he's not to be worshipped. Chuck Smith, my mentor, the founder of Calvary Chapel, great man of God, but not to be worshipped. See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. All true prophecy centers around the person of Jesus Christ. You've probably heard this before, but history is his story, right? He is the focal point of history. In fact, also in the book of Hebrews chapter 1, it says that in the former times God spoke to us through the prophet, prophets, but in these latter days he has spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, interesting, I've, I've traveled in just about every circle within Christianity that you can imagine. Not that I've embraced every different belief system, but traveling as a traveling musician, Christian musician, singing, playing in churches, God gave us the opportunity to sing in every kind of church you can think of, Catholic churches, Methodist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, United Church of Christ, it goes on and on. And what I've seen, particularly among the more charismatic Pentecostal groups especially, many people seeking after personal prophecies. Do you have a word from the Lord for me? Guess what? God can speak to you directly. You don't need some fake phony prophet to give you some fake phony word. You can hear directly from God through the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Hoping for some exciting word about ministry, marriage, money. Thus saith the Lord, you shall go forth and do mighty things for God. And you know what happens? Then nothing really exciting happens, and people get disillusioned, they get discouraged. It's just like the word of faith movement. If you have enough faith, you can be wealthy. If you have enough faith, you can be healthy. If you have enough faith, you can raise that person from the dead. And when it doesn't happen, the guilt and the shame and the discouragement that comes upon people is horrible. It's abominable what these false teachers do to people. And if they give you a good enough personal prophecy, then you'll put some nice big checks and dollar bills into their offering. You shall minister to thousands, to millions. And then you will spend the rest of your life waiting around for it to happen instead of just moving forward with God. It's much easier to steer a moving object. You notice that? It's a lot easier to steer your car when you're driving down the road than when you're sitting still. And what these things do is they paralyze people. I'm still waiting for my big ministry. Where is it? Well, just get out there and do the ministry that God's provided for you. Or here's one. Thou shalt soon be rolling in the bucks. Not deer, money. 
Melania shall divorce that vile infidel Donald and cleave unto thee. <laughs> you didn't get that one, did you? <laughs> anyway. Looking for that spiritual fortune cookie, I call it. Some people actually take those things seriously, you know, the fortune cookies. So people look for a spiritual fortune cookie, but the true purpose of prophecy is to reveal Jesus. So you can have the fortune cookie, I'll take the bread of heaven. <laughs> so folks, we've seen over the past several weeks the destruction of the great prostitute, Babylon. Now we've seen the exaltation of the bride of Christ. We are betrothed to Jesus and are called to remain faithful to him, knowing that one day soon he will come for us to take us to his father's house, just like we saw in the movie Before the Wrath, to the bridal chamber he's been preparing for us for over 2,000 years. Earth time. And there's no doubt it'll all be worth the waiting. So the next time someone tries to draw you away from him, from Jesus, into unfaithfulness, and it can be even under the so-called banner of Christianity. Do you realize that? Just say, sorry, I'm saving myself for the bridegroom. Let's stand. Let's stand. Let's bow our heads for a moment. We always like to give opportunity for someone who has a prayer request. Please raise your hands if you have a prayer request this morning. Whatever it might be. God is concerned and cares about every issue of our lives. A lot of hands up today. Father God, you see each one, you know each one, you know what's in each heart, each mind. Father, we'd start with praying for health issues. It might be for someone in this room, it might be for someone not in this room. We know that's no problem for you. You can send your Holy Spirit anywhere at any time, in a moment, an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. We lift up everyone whose request involves health issues, whether it's a a terminal illness, a chronic illness, an acute problem. Lord, from the smallest thing, you care about us inside and out. So we lift up all these various health issues, Father, whether it's diabetes, cancer, heart disease, lung disease, or a cold, allergies, whatever it might be, Father, you care. You are loving, compassionate. You're the God of all compassion. So we lift all these health issues up, and we pray for healing, Father. We know that you are sovereign, you are Lord, and that you know things we don't know. But Lord, in our frail, weak, humble human condition, we call out and we cry out for healing in Jesus' name. Lord, we lift up financial issues, Lord, whether it be the need of a job, the needed provision for a certain specific things, whether it's property taxes or the rent, whatever it might be, Father, food. Lord, you did promise to provide for our, our needs. You taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And we know it's not just food. We know it's everything that we need emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and physically. But we do lift up these financial issues. Pray for wisdom and guidance from your Holy Spirit. Lord, we know that uh, you do the heavy lifting, but we have a part to play as well. So please give us wisdom to manage the resources you've given us and wisdom to how we might multiply those in proportion to how giving we are, Lord. We know that your word tells us that those who give, more will be given to them. 
and those who do not give, that which they do have will be taken away. So help us not to forget that. Lord, sometimes we get so introverted and ingrown that we forget about the needs of others. Help us not to do that. Lord, we lift up relationships that may be damaged, broken, strained, that you would bring healing and restoration, that you'd help us to be peacemakers. Lord, that you would open the hearts and minds of those that we're in conflict with, that they might be open and receptive to our um, efforts to restore relationship. Lord, we pray for comfort and strength for those who are struggling emotionally, mentally, spiritually, physically. Just pour out your Holy Spirit upon each one. And we thank you that you do hear our prayers, you do answer, and I'm sure, Lord, that every one of us in this room have testimonies of answered prayers. And we look forward to the answers to the prayers that we've prayed here today. We thank you for the power of your word. Lord, help us to continue to do our part in preparing ourselves for that great and glorious wedding day that's coming soon when we will be joined forever to our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.